The scripture reading for this evening comes from Mark 12:35 through 44. This is God's word. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's good to be back. Uh, Thanks for letting me have a break. I hope and trust that things went well while I was was away. And uh, we're going to continue tonight with our series in the Gospel of Mark. And in case you're wondering, we will be done with this by the end of the summer. Uh, And uh, we'll pick up with some uh, new stuff come the end of the summer and on into the fall. But uh, we're in the very last section of Mark's Gospel. And uh, we've been camping out here in Mark chapter 12 for a few weeks because where we are in the story, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 11. And essentially from the very moment he entered into Jerusalem and into the temple in Jerusalem, he has been bombarded by questions from the religious leaders, all intended to undermine him and unravel his ministry and prove that he really isn't who he has said he is. And yet, Jesus continues, in each case, to respond and to answer to these questions with such uh, wisdom, such tact, such shrewdness, that we see at the end of the previous passage, Mark tells us that after the last question that Jesus has been asked, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And so, here we are. Jesus has uh, withstood the, the, the onslaught of questions, but he's not done yet. He is going to ask his own question. And this is the very end, really, of Jesus' public teaching ministry. After this passage, Jesus will leave the temple... He will head out of Jerusalem, and the next time he enters into Jerusalem, the series of events that lead to his death and his resurrection will begin to unfold. And so, what I want to do with this passage is simply look at, uh, look at it under three headings. Jesus here is, like I said, responded to these questions, and now he's actually going to uh, challenge these religious leaders. And he confronts them 
And the story then ends with actually a surprise ending about this this poor widow. So the three headings that we're going to use to look at this passage are, first of all, we're going to look at the question that Jesus asks. And we're going to look at the warning that Jesus gives and finish with the faith that Jesus sees. So first, let's look at the question that Jesus asks. You look in verse 35 to 37. Jesus is in the temple and, and he asks this question, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Or he rephrases it slightly in verse 37. He says, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And like in chapter 8, when Jesus was with his disciples and asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? It's a question of identity. Who is the Messiah? And here Jesus, in a, in a different form, asked the same basic question of the religious leaders, of the scribes and the people in the temple of who is this, who is the Messiah? He's challenging the scribes' understanding of the Messiah. And it was common in Jesus' day, in light of a number of Old Testament passages, uh, in, especially in the prophets and in uh, Samuel, to understand the Messiah as the son of David. Messiah in the Old Testament is a very, uh, it's, a, it's a word that simply means the anointed one. It was uh, not a specific term, it was more generic, but as time passed and as these promises of God became uh, more and more familiar with the people, as they waited more and more for this promised Messiah to come, this idea took on more and more specificity, that it was, there was a specific person, a chosen king who would come to rescue God's people. But for the scribes, they understood who the Christ was as simply the son of David. And so Jesus challenges this. And he takes them to Psalm 110 in the very first verse. That's what we see here quoted when when Jesus says that David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, uh, we just read this psalm a few, few moments ago. And I, I don't know if you know this or not, but this is the most frequently quoted or alluded to psalm or passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament. There is no passage that gets referred to or quoted more than this one in the New Testament. And Jesus, what he's doing here is he's trying to show from the scriptures that the Messiah, the Christ, is more than simply the son of David, as the scribes taught. So he goes and he he looks at this verse and quotes it. And the main idea that you need to see here that Jesus is trying to show is that there's a promise that's quoted. When the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What Jesus, the reason Jesus quotes this is to show that David himself understood that this promise about the Messiah didn't refer to him. That David himself understood that his role in God's story, while indispensable, was not ultimate. The important point to see here is David's recognition that the Messiah was greater than himself. And that's something that the scribes had not grasped. They had not heard Jesus or understood him or believed what he was saying. 
And you might even remember that much of the reason for that is Jesus didn't even really refer to himself as the Christ. For the, the bulk of Mark's gospel, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Which if you can reach back several weeks, that's a phrase out of Daniel 7. A divine figure who would come, who would receive God's kingdom, his power, and he would act on the behalf of his people to rescue them. It's essentially the same, uh, same thing as the Messiah, but just put differently. Jesus here, what he's trying to do is he's, not only is he challenging the, the, the scribes, he's challenging you and me. And it's a pretty simple challenge, but it's this. Are you willing to learn from Jesus? Will you sit at his feet? Will you allow him to teach you what the scriptures teach about him? Are you doing that? Will you do that? This was the, this was the problem of the scribes. They would not yield to what Jesus taught them about who he was and what the scriptures mean. Now, it's, it's important to see that Jesus is simply challenging you and through this question that he gives to the scribes to ask yourself, do you really know the answer to the most important question that you can ask? My guess is that many of us here have a number of questions that are on your, your boilerplate as you think about your life. But Jesus here comes to you. This is the last thing he says in the temple, in Jerusalem, is he puts this question. Do you know who the Messiah really is? But there's another question we need to ask that leads us to our second heading here about the warning that Jesus gives us. Why is it so important to learn from Jesus? Why is it so important to not only understand who Jesus is as the Messiah, that he's not only the son of David, but he's also the son of God, is that if you don't understand that, without an accurate understanding of who he is as the Messiah, there's, we will inevitably do one thing. We will always make our lives more about us than about God and his grace and his mercy. There just simply is no other way to avoid that. When we fail to see Jesus as the king, as the suffering king, as the one who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, when that either that penny has not dropped or we fail to remember that, what is always happening is we are making our lives more about us than about him. Which fits exactly with the warning that Jesus gives about these religious leaders, about the scribes in the midst of his teaching that we see here in verses 38 to 40. The scribes here are not unique. Throughout the entire Bible, in explicit teaching or even through stories, we see again and again the default mode of the human heart is utterly self-absorbed. And if this is true, even and especially among those called to lead God's people, as a pastor, and I know from my, my fellow elders here, this is not a comfortable passage to read, let alone have to talk to you about. 
Because essentially what it says is here, I, as along with my, my fellow elders, we are the most susceptible to making religion about us at your expense. If you want a great example of this, go look in Ezekiel chapter 34. You write that down. Ezekiel chapter 34. It is one of the scariest passages you'll ever read about God's people. Because in that passage, God describes those who he has put as shepherds over his people as wolves. They exploit. They take advantage. They oppress. They do not care for. They do not feed. And here, Jesus warns against those kinds of leaders. He warns them, and he, says, he gives concrete examples. That the scribes, they walk around in their long, flowing robes in order to uh, receive greetings in the marketplaces. They want the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at all the big banquets. In verse 40, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Just as one example here, when Jesus refers to the devouring of widows' houses, he's essentially describing the way in which these religious leaders couldn't be more different than what they were called to be. Because again and again, throughout the Bible, God's heart for those who are the least and the lowest are his priority. Again and again, we see God calling his people to care for the widow and the orphan and the sojourner. And the exact opposite is happening here. And therefore, what I want you to see here is that without a true understanding of who Jesus is, which the scribes fail to have here, the ministry of God's people falls apart. In other words, unless we, as God's people, see Jesus according to the scriptures, our church will fall apart. And not only that, the only thing that can keep a church together is Jesus Christ, His gospel. That is all we need, and it is everything we need. And without Him, without a clear devotion and love and understanding of who He is, the church simply devolves into a group of egos and agendas rather than a place that is relishing in and delighting in and rejoicing in God's free grace to sinners. And notice Jesus, he's, he's faced this problem already, even with his disciples. If you remember back to chapter 10, uh, James and John, they're walking down the road and they're, they're debating and they go to Jesus and they want to know who's the greatest. And Jesus talks to them for a minute and towards the end he says to them, whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a warning that Jesus gives. And I think it's, it's pretty easy. You know, this, the, the religious leaders in the Gospels are, are pretty easy to pick on. They, they, they don't come off so good. But think about this with me for a moment. What do we see? in these religious leaders, the way that Jesus talks about them. We see selfish ambition. We see pride. 
We see greed, uh, taking advantage of other people. And we ought not be too quick to run past that and think that that doesn't describe us too. And what are we supposed to do? In the same way that we need to listen to the scriptures to truly know who Jesus is as the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, we also need to listen to the scriptures to know who we are. There are all kinds of books you can go find, probably really helpful ones, to help you understand what kind of personality you are, uh, why you do certain things, and to describe and understand maybe your family background better. But listen to how the scriptures describe their ability to help you know who you really are. This comes out of Hebrews chapter 4, where the writer says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see, what Jesus is doing here when he warns us about the failure of these religious leaders, he's also warning us about the very same uh, heart maneuvers that we have. And he's given us the scriptures that are able to actually draw out of you the thoughts and intentions of your heart. There is no other way to truly know who you are apart from the scriptures. There is no way to truly know who Jesus is apart from the scriptures. And he's calling us back to that. And in fact, the last bit of this passage as we move on to uh, the faith that Jesus sees, it's intended to help us discern these very things, the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And it does that by drawing a stark contrast between these scribes and the humble faith of the poor widow. I don't think there's any coincidence or accident here that uh, Jesus uh, actually describes the failure of these religious leaders with respect to widows. And then Mark includes this story about this poor widow. And he includes her here as a model of what it looks like to follow Jesus. In total contrast to these religious leaders. We've seen Mark do this before with blind Bartimaeus. He has a habit in his gospel of picking the most unlikely, unpopular, most unimpressive people to show you what does true faith, genuine faith, what's that look like in everyday life? And here he uses this poor widow to help us to see that. And so Jesus here... In verses 41 to 44, after he's done teaching, he, he goes and he sits down towards the entrance into the temple. He sits across from the treasury where people come in and they give their offerings. And he notices all of these people, all these many rich people, the passage tells us, come in and they put their offerings into the uh, offering boxes or their offering receptacles. And after they've passed, he then notices this poor widow who comes and he notices that she puts in two coins. And what you need to know about this is that in the temple, 
uh, the, the offering receptacles, they looked like uh, they were big metal uh, trumpets, actually, that came out of a wall. And you walked up to it and you dumped your money into it. And it would slide down this funnel into the treasury behind this wall. And sometimes they, they were broken. There were 13 of them. And some uh, Bible scholars say that some of those would just describe different kinds of offerings. But whatever the case may be, the point I want you to see here is that there were metal. And in the first century, you didn't have paper money. You didn't have paper checks. You know, you couldn't pay online. You had metal money. So think for a moment. If you're a super rich person and you walk into the temple and you have this big bag of coins and you dump it into one of these metal uh, uh, offering receptacles, what's going to happen? There's going to be a loud clanging of all this money going down this into the offering. Everyone can hear it. And you might imagine, there may be, I don't know, who knows, it could have been sort of a sight to behold. People would gather and see who are the rich people are going to pour all their money in. But then imagine this poor widow. Mark tells us she had two coins. And that amounted to about a penny, which is a fraction of a day's worth of wages. And who knows how, how the story unfold. Maybe all of the rich people were gone and she was by herself and she walks up and she puts two coins and it goes clink clink. And you might imagine perhaps she's embarrassed or ashamed. But Jesus notices her. And look what he says. Verse 43. Calls his disciples to him and he said, Truly I say to you, This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, I think the most striking phrase in this passage is when Jesus says in verse 43, this poor widow has put in more than all those who put in money into that offering box. What kind of mathematics is Jesus using here? See, Jesus is simply helping us to see that the way that uh, divine math works is totally different than the way that you and I tend to think about it. You know, most of us would look at this passage and we kind of treat giving to, uh, to God and his purposes in the world kind of like uh, donors at universities where you get an $11 million donation to put an addition on the football stadium. And it's, it's phenomenal. We don't have a category for this. Either in our culture or in our own hearts where the God of the universe says... This poor widow who gave out of her poverty put more into that offering than all of these rich people combined. Now, what's he saying here? One one writer, I think, commenting on this helps us a lot. He gives us three lessons to think of here that Jesus is teaching. First of all, that Jesus here is teaching us that our giving is to be measured by proportion, not by addition. By proportion, not by 
addition. The reason that Jesus says she gave more wasn't about how much. It was about how much she had. She gave more because she gave everything that she had. The second lesson is that our giving is not measured by the amount, but by the sacrifice. What Jesus notices here isn't the amount that's given, but the cost of the gift. That here, this poor widow is said to have given everything that she had. Why didn't she just give one coin? She could have kept one, but she didn't. She gave both. It cost her more to give those two seemingly insignificant coins than it cost all those rich people to put all that money into the offering. And the third lesson he teaches us here from this is that our giving is always in the sight of Jesus. What Jesus helps us to see here is that whether we give a lot or whether we give a little, what Jesus cares about is the heart of the giver. We can't hide behind whether how much we give or how little we give. Because Jesus looks on the heart. So let me ask you, what is your reaction to this story of this poor widow? I suspect there's probably a number, but let me share just two that came to me as I was reflecting on this. And perhaps you might resonate with them. The first reaction is, the poor widow's offering just seems so small and insignificant. How could this really be as significant as Jesus seems to be making it out to be? That could be one. But the other one, I think, is certainly um, much more to the point for me and perhaps for you. This is a terrifying story. Uh, And I speak personally here. It scares me to see Jesus affirm and honor this poor widow's offering because I don't think I could ever think about my life and my resources like that woman. Let's just be honest. She gave everything she had. She was so secure and confident in God's promises to take care of her, she let it all go. If you don't think that's terrifying, I'm not sure you have a pulse. (laughs) It's a terrifying story. And yet, how then, what would lead someone like this poor widow to give all that she had? There's only one answer to that. There's only one answer to this kind of faith, to this kind of Willingness to follow and put your life entirely in the hands of Jesus. He must be more precious to you than all the money you have, all the skills that you have, all the resources at your disposal. You see, the terror that I feel really begins to point up how hard it is for me to trust Jesus. Or put another way, what it also points up is how much I have to grow in seeing the beauty and the power and the hope and the confidence and the security of the gospel. Listen to how 
How do you get there? Listen to how the Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see what he's doing there? Paul is taking the good news of the gospel and he's putting it right into your checking account. He's putting it right into all of the earthly resources, good though they may, they may be, and, getting, and, and enabling you to see them entirely differently, to see them through the lens of the costly sacrifice of Jesus. You see, here's why, you know, sometimes I have people ask me the question, do you think Christians are still responsible or bound to give a tithe, 10%? And um, I always kind of hem and haw and say, well, I suppose... I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. But when you begin to look at the gospel, it blows 10% totally out of the water. That's what this story shows you. This poor widow gave all she had to live on. Now, I want you to hear me on that. I'm not trying to guilt you into giving more money. What I'm trying to do is to show you how your money helps you understand and see the gospel. That when you begin to look at the gospel, or excuse me, your money, your possessions, from the standpoint of the infinite cost of God's love in sending His Son to live the life that you should have lived and die the death that you deserve to die, that will radically change the way you view your resources forever. And that is the only way that you will ever be freed from the fear of not being secure financially. That's what this story helps us to do. So let me ask you as we close, do you struggle to believe Jesus, that he truly is the Savior of the world? That he alone is the one that you most need more than anyone or anything else that the world can give? Do you struggle with pride uh, or selfish ambition and greed like the religious leaders that we looked at? Uh, Do you look at the poor widow and think, that just sounds crazy? If you answered yes to any of those or even partly to any of those, Jesus has you right where he wants you. And if you're like me, when I'm uncomfortable, I try to get out of that as quick as I can. And let me try to implore you, if this passage makes you uncomfortable, try to sit there. Don't rush past it. Ask yourself, why am I so uncomfortable? What is it about this passage that gets under my skin and exposes me? And as the scriptures say, begins to pull out the thoughts and intentions of your heart. He has you right where he, has, he wants you. So let him unfold for you who he really is. Let the scriptures teach you who you really are. And then, like this poor widow, soak your heart in the gospel. This gospel of free grace every day until you begin to see the faith of this poor widow begin to bubble up and bubble out and bubble over in your life. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, uh, we, we pray that you would take this passage and you would use it as you say that your word can to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And I pray that whatever we find there, you would not leave us there, but it would be used by, by you to help us to see our need for Jesus, that it would lead us to him, that in him we would find every, everything that we need, that we would find uh, patience, we would find forgiveness, we would find help, we would find joy, we would find security, we'd find confidence, we would find acceptance. And we pray that that good news would change us from the inside out. So that like this poor widow, we might day in and day out lay our lives at your feet. That instead of trying to save our lives, we would lose our lives for your sake and the gospel. And in so doing, discover the salvation that you alone can give. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.